God our Father, Lord, we are grateful, Lord, that you are the King of Heaven. We are grateful, Lord, that you uh, have got the whole world in your hands. That, God, this is your creation. And that we are the work of your hands. And that, Lord, you have a good and a prosperous plan for those who love you and fear you and serve you. And so we ask, Lord, for willing hearts by your spirit that we might be those, Lord, who love you and serve you all the days of our life, who have our hope in heaven, God, eternal life, where we will never die but lie down in your presence and you will wipe every tear from our eyes. God, we look forward to that day and we praise you for such hope. You're a glorious God and yours is a glorious kingdom and I pray that you would open our eyes to see clearly how you are bringing your world to an expected end, one of which you have spoken long ago and one which will surely come to pass in the very near future. We thank you for the privilege that we have today to look into your word, to freely proclaim your word in this place. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Okay. So with that, just a little bit of review. We've been talking about the person of Christ. And um, that has brought us in our study to... um, an understanding of the humiliation and the exaltation of Christ. And so last week we were talking about the humiliation or the humility of Christ and also what we call the condescension, which really is the same thing. The condescension is the idea that God himself condescended to become a man incarnate in the flesh, who is the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the word who became flesh and dwelt among us, John 1.14. And and that God left his former glory in heaven to come to the earth and to serve us, the scripture says, as a bondservant and to humble himself before men and become obedient to death, the scripture says, even death on a cross. If you have your Bible, Philippians 2, verses 9 through 11, if not, it's on page 19 of the handouts. There toward the top, sorry, starting in verse 6. Speaking of the Lord Jesus there, it says in Philippians 2, verse 6 and following, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant, and being made in the likeness of men. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And we talked about the really profound nature of this idea that God, very God, would leave heaven and come to this planet full of sinful men who he created, who willfully transgress against him and against his law and spurn his reproofs. And yet he would come here and he would humble himself before us in this tremendous display of love and in this tremendous display of servanthood and in this (laughs) tremendous display of humility and that he would even humble himself so far as to the pain of suffering and death 
even death by crucifixion. And give himself as a sacrifice for the sins of the very ones who kill him. That is what we call the condescension or the humility of Christ. And it is the greatest display of humility in all of history. Amen? But the scripture doesn't stop there. It goes on in verse 9 and says this. Therefore, because Jesus did these things as a man, also God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And so then we see the exaltation of Christ. And when we speak about the exaltation of Christ, we are speaking about that thing which God the Father did for God the Son, who is now also taken on an additional nature as a man. So when we talk about the exaltation of Christ, remember, we're talking specifically about Jesus in his humanity. That in his humanity, God exalted him. So that he now has a name among his creation, which is above every name. That at his name, every knee should bow both of men and of angels and of every uh, creature that is in existence, and that they should humble themselves before him and confess that he is what? Lord, it says, to the glory of God the Father. So um, Jesus, the scripture says, has been exalted, and God has bestowed on him a name which is above every name. And, uh, and of course, we, we talked about this at great length last week and talked about this was, uh, this exaltation was a position of authority which has now been given to Christ. And when the Bible speaks of that position of authority, it describes it in biblical terms, both Old Testament and New Testament, as being seated at the right hand of God. And if you will, this idea of being seated at the right hand of God, uh, I'll explain it to you here uh, just briefly, but it's, it's at the bottom of page 19 there. The scripture speaks in many places of Christ's exaltation now at the right hand of God. The term right hand means that God has given him the greatest honor, dignity, and power as princes set the next in honor and authority to themselves at their right hands. It was... Uh, esteemed the place of the highest honor to be seated at the right hand of a prince. So, to be seated at the right hand of God means only that Jesus is exalted to the highest honor of the universe. So we are told in the scripture that when Jesus ascended into heaven, he sat down at God's right hand. And this is right out of the scripture, Mark 16, 19. So then when the Lord Jesus had spoken to them, he was received up into heaven and sat down at the right hand of God. And of course, we know that as the ascension. Okay, so you have the condescension. God coming down to the earth, humbling himself, becoming a man and dying the death on the cross, right? And then we have the ascension. After being resurrected from the dead, Jesus ascended back into heaven to the right hand of God, where he currently sits, 
the scripture says, awaiting his enemies to be put under his feet. Okay? Or let me explain that a little clearer. That through the outworking of the circumstances of human history, Christ's enemies will be put under his feet. Okay? Now, remember that this exaltation is something that has happened for the, for the man Christ Jesus. That Jesus the man is on the throne at the right hand of God. And as we have said, he will be a man forever. He took on the nature of a man in the incarnation. He will be a man forever. And he even now is a man in a spiritual body sitting at the right hand of God. And the scripture says waiting for his enemies to be put under his feet. The reference for that is at the top of page 20. That's Psalm 110 and verse 1. Now this was... For the Jews, this was the chief messianic prophecy um, in the Old Testament because it spoke of the kingly rule of the Messiah. And here it says in Psalm 110 verse 1, The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make thine enemies a footstool for thy feet. And so, if you will, you see pictured Jesus the, the man, Jesus the king, sitting at the right hand of the Lord, Yahweh, God, awaiting for his enemies to be put under his feet. That's how the scripture describes this place of authority to which Jesus has currently been exalted. He is at the right hand of God. And Jesus um, uh, spoke of this when he uh, was testifying uh, before... um, Uh, Caiaphas, the high priest. And in Matthew 26, Jesus says this. He says, um, they're asking him the question in verse 63. The high priest, that is Caiaphas, said to him, I adjure you by the living God that you tell us whether you are the Christ, the Son of God. And Jesus said to him, you have said it yourself. Nevertheless, I tell you, hereafter you shall see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. And so Jesus speaks of a yet future day when even Caiaphas, the high priest, and all the Jews, and every eye, the scripture says, Revelation 1.8, right? Every eye will see him and those who pierced him, right? Zechariah. And they will mourn, right? And, and uh, of course, this was Jesus' prophecy. You shall see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power. Well, we know that the scripture says that he ascended to the right hand of God. He is at that place. We know he has made this prophecy about returning, coming with power and with great glory and with many angels, right? With all of his holy ones, right? And that every eye would see him. And it says in Matthew 24, right about verse 30, I think it is, right there. The sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky and all the nations of the earth will mourn. Right. And he will send forth his angels with a great trumpet call and will gather his elect from one end of the earth to the other. Amen. Of course, that word's a little different in three different places. That appears one in Matthew 24, one in Mark 13 and another in Luke 21. That same verse of scripture is repeated with slightly different terms. You might want to take a look at that. But Jesus has prophesied about this return. And... um, However, we know that currently he is at the right hand of God and that currently 
we look around at the world's circumstances and we wonder, are Christ's enemies really being put under his feet? Amen? Ever wonder that? Look around in the world, it seems like his enemies appear to be flourishing at times. Amen? That's right. That's right. They, they will not prevail. And in the end, right, soon and very soon, we're going to see what? The king. And Jesus, the suffering servant, is going to return as a conquering king. Okay? And, of course, that's going to be the topic of our discussion here today. Um, so here we're talking about the exaltation of the man Christ Jesus as the ruler of the nations. And the reason I point this out is because we cannot talk about the exaltation of Christ without talking about his kingship. Because his kingship is something to which both the Old and New Testaments have a tremendous amount to say about that. Okay? So uh, along with that, I provided quite a few scripture references that describe this. And then I also provided a chart of historic premillennialism. And I, I, I'm just sure I'm going to get everybody's eschatological blood flowing this morning. So if you, if, you have the, um, if you have the chart there and you have questions about that, I'm going to allow a little bit of time for question and answer at the end of the class. And um, so if somebody will flag me about 9.20, if we haven't got there, I'll stop and I'll, 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 we'll do a little bit of question and answer. Now, I, 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 we can't argue about eschatology in the middle of the class. I can give you clarification for what's written on the chart and what my position is, okay? But if you want to debate it, we're going to have to do that outside of the class because that's not going to be healthy for anybody, okay? So um, <clears throat> uh, with that, uh, starting on page 20, about two-thirds of the way down, there it says, ruler of the nations. And so I want to make sure that you're following me. The scripture says that because of Jesus' humiliation, therefore God also highly exalted him and gave him a name which is above every name. And then in the scripture, when he ascended, he ascended to the right hand of God. So if you think about this in terms of a timeline, okay, here is time going along and and Jesus comes to the earth in the condescension and the incarnation becomes a man and dies on the cross. He's resurrected from the dead on the third day. And uh, count 50, right? Pentecost. And he ascends into heaven. And, uh, and now he's uh, uh, sitting at the right hand of God, awaiting his enemies to be made his footstool or to have his enemies put under subjection to him. Okay, And so during this current age, which we refer to as the church age, this is a time period when in the outworking of human history, um, Christ's enemies are being put under his feet. And many more things are happening, right? For instance, the church is being gathered together from all the nations, every tribe and language and nation and people. Right, And all those whom God has chosen from the foundation of the earth are being called together. They are the church. Right? What's that word in the New Testament? Eklektos. What does it mean? The called out ones. Okay? 
And so the church is being called out from among all the nations of, of the earth during this time period of the church age, okay? Well, just toward the end of that is all of the climactic experiences of the return of Christ and the actual physical subjection of all of Christ's enemies is going to take place at the very hand of God himself, okay? So, uh, with that, that's kind of the background, if you will, in the timeline here of Jesus, the man, being the ruler of the nations. And so let's talk a bit about what the scripture has to say about that. What is more is that this man, Christ Jesus, will reign as king over all the earth from his throne in Jerusalem. Jesus will be the ruler of the nations of the earth, and all the nations will come and worship the Lord and acknowledge his lordship. Okay? Did you know that the Bible teaches that clearly? Okay? If not, look with me at just a few scripture references, and trust me, there are many, 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 many more. I've just picked out a few which I thought seemed to be the clearest. Uh, But if you will, Psalm 86 uh, prophesies of this. There it says that all the nations whom thou hast made shall come and worship before thee, O Lord, and they shall glorify thy name, for thou art great and dost wondrous deeds. Thou alone art God. Now, I want to remind you of something. In the Old Testament, you have the word Lord. Everybody remember this? We talked about this a bit. And this word Lord in the Old Testament is the, is the Hebrew word Jehovah or Yahweh, right? The word without consonants, the ones the Jews wouldn't pronounce because it was so holy, right? But this name Lord is the covenant name of God for the Jews. Everybody with me so far? The Lord, Okay. So in the Old Testament, when you read the word Lord, it's the name for God, which we refer to as Jehovah. Okay? Well, you might remember that when we were talking about the deity of Christ, and I think uh, Ryan was teaching that lesson, he was telling you, and I brought it up the next week, also in review, that this word Lord in the New Testament is spoken of the Lord Jesus Christ. That this very covenant name of God is a reference to Jesus himself. That he's the Lord of the covenant. He's God, very God. He is the great I am. The Jehovah God. Are you with me? So think about this. When you're reading that in the Old Testament, you kind of tend to think about it as Jehovah. And if you will, you think, if you will, in terms of God the Father. But we need to understand, in New Testament terms, this is the man, Christ Jesus, the Lord, Jehovah God. You with me? So I uh, just wanted to remind you of that. And, and any time you're reading through the Old Testament, you understand that this word is referring to the covenant name of God, and it is also, therefore, referring to the Lord Jesus Christ. Okay? Of course, that gets into the whole doctrine of the Trinity, but... Uh, Just something I wanted to remind you of as we go through these scriptures. So it says here that all the nations of the earth are going to come and worship before him. Who? The Lord, Jehovah God. You with me? And in Psalm 22, it says, all the ends of the earth will remember and turn to the Lord and all the families of the nations will worship before thee. For the kingdom is the Lord's and he rules over the nations. Okay, now, I want to ask you a question. Has that happened yet? 
Yes? So um, all the families of the nations are currently worshiping before the Lord? Right. They're, they're not. Is he exalted and rule over the nations? Yes. So it is partially fulfilled. But right now, it's a spiritual rule. It's a reign in heaven by which men now willfully come to God and make themselves subject to his kingdom and his power through belief and faith in his cross and in his lordship. Amen? But this has not yet physically come to pass on the earth. In other words, all the nations do not come and worship before him. Okay? So, there will come a day yet future when God will establish Christ's throne and kingdom and he will rule all other nations. His kingdom will never end or be destroyed. And this is what it speaks of in Daniel chapter 7 and verse 27. There it says, Then the sovereignty, the dominion, and the greatness of all the kingdoms under the whole heaven will be given to the people of the saints of the highest one. His kingdom will be an everlasting kingdom and all the dominions will serve and obey him. You see how clearly the Old Testament speaks about that? Right? So uh, again, I want to ask you a question right now. (laughs) Do all the dominions serve and obey Christ? No, of course not. That hasn't quite happened yet. We're still waiting with him, right? For his enemies to be put in subjection under his feet. And by the way, that's going to come and that's going to happen very forcefully. Because when he returns, he's going to take the kingdom by force. Amen? Read Revelation chapter 16 if you have any doubts about that. There are some very vivid pictures about how it takes place. And it is not a pretty picture. Amen? Right, except for us. Yeah, we're in heaven rejoicing at that point. That's chapter 15 of Revelation. Okay, so Daniel 2.44 puts it this way. It says, In the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom which will never be destroyed, and that kingdom will not be left for another people. It will crush and put an end to all these kingdoms, but it will itself endure forever. Okay? And there again, a prophecy about Christ's kingdom being established and existing for how long? Forever. Okay? In this kingship, all the nations of the earth will come and pay homage to Jesus the king. This is God's warning to all the kings of the earth. Now I want you to think about this idea about paying homage. Who can give me a brief description of what it means to pay homage to a king? Anybody? Pay homage to a king? Reverence? Bow down? Anybody else? Submission? Bring gifts? How about taxes? Give us your money. Right? You with me? And usually by the time people are coughing up their money, they're in subjection. That's the last thing to go, right? You with me? But they, they pay homage to a king. What do, they, what do they do? They recognize his authority over them. They recognize his authority in governing over their system, their life, their dominion, whatever it may be. And the scripture speaks of this homage that they will pay to Christ. In other words, this recognition of his authority. Consider how the scripture speaks about this in Psalm 2. In fact, here God is warning the kings of the earth that they had better do this. Here's what he says. 
starting in verse 2 of Psalm 8. Ask of me, and I will surely give the nations as thine inheritance, and the very ends of the earth as thy possession. Thou shalt break them with a rod of iron, thou shalt shatter them like earthenware. Now therefore, O kings, show discernment, take warning, O judges of the earth. Worship the Lord with reverence and rejoice with trembling. Do homage to the Son, lest he become angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath may soon be kindled. How blessed are all those who take refuge in him. And here is a warning from God. Now, you see those words there in Psalm 2 that say, do homage, verse 12? You're familiar with the King James translation of that? Kiss the Son. It says, lest he become angry. You with me? The scripture paints this vivid picture of the kings of the earth being warned by God to pay homage to his son, the king who he installs on his holy hill. Amen? Christ will yield exceeding great power over them, that is the kings of the earth, and they shall live under his rule or be destroyed. He will judge the nations with justice and they will obey him. Psalm 110 verses uh, verses 5 and 6. The Lord is at thy right hand. He will shatter kings in the day of his wrath. He will judge among the nations. He will fill them with corpses and he will shatter the chief men over a broad country. Okay? And there is a prophecy of Christ physically bringing the rebellious kings of the earth in submission to him so that the the armies of those kings are dying at his hand. Okay, And here the scripture speaks of that as shattering these kings in the day of his wrath. Okay, Let me tell you, there's a day coming when the wrath of the Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, is going to be uh, meted out against the kings of the earth. And he is physically going to bring them into subjection and there is going to be a great war over this. Can you imagine this? Men are going to make war with God. (laughs) Yeah, they're going to try. They're going to try, all right? That's about all it'll be, right? Of course, you're familiar with the earlier part of Psalm 2 where the the scripture paints a picture of God sitting in heaven and laughing and scoffing at the kings of the earth who have gathered to make war against him. Amen? It's funny. How deep in darkness men really are. That God, very God, who holds the very molecules of their body together, they're going to shake their fist at him and make war with him. Imagine that. The epitome of ignorance. Amen? Well, God has warned the kings of the earth that he is coming angrily to put them in subjection underneath his feet. The kings of the earth will be in subjection to him and will serve him. The extent of this rule will be worldwide, including men from every tribe and language. This is what the scripture says. Psalm 72, verses 10 and following. Let the kings of Tarshish and the islands bring presents. The kings of Sheba and Seba offer gifts. And let all kings bow down before him, and all nations serve him. 
You look at that in other translations and it, it actually says, um, it doesn't just say let the kings, it says the king's will. Um, it's a very interesting passage of scripture, Psalm 72, but it's one that speaks of the uh, earthly, kingly rule of God himself. Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 and 14 speaks about the Messiah and his rule this way. I kept looking in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like a son of man was coming. And he came up to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and men of every language might serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not pass away, and his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. Okay? So he was given dominion, the scripture says, and glory and a kingdom that all people and nations and men of every language might what? Serve him. And it is a dominion, the scripture says, which is an everlasting dominion. It will not be destroyed. It will never pass away. There will come a time when Jesus will put the kings of the earth under his feet and it will never again change. He will always be the king. Okay? We'll talk more about that here shortly. But, you know, this is something that should be a great encouragement to you as you look around in the world and you see all the suffering and the dying and the crying and the death and the pain and the hurt. There is coming a day when God will no longer put up with that. And he's written it in a book. The day he's going to show up, I promise you, is written in a book. And it's coming soon and very soon. And Jesus the King is going to come and he's going to put all these enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. Right? Where do we get that? 1 Corinthians 15. 1 Corinthians 15. Right? So, But you have to understand, all of Christ's enemies are going to be put under his feet, every last one. And when he's all said and done with the thing, here's what he promises. He says... I will wipe every tear from their eyes and there will no longer be any pain or mourning or dying or death for the old order of things will pass away. Amen? And it's not just going to be wicked men that he puts under his feet, but Satan himself and sin will be eradicated from the face of the earth. Amen? People will imagine this. Imagine a world where nobody has sin in their hearts. Nobody's a sinner. What does that look like? People are tripping over one another, trying to love one another and serve one another. That's what it looks like. Amen? Kind of a picture of what the church ought to look like. Amen? Okay, well, so, going on, Zechariah chapter 14, verses 16 and following. Listen to how the Old Testament has spoken about this. Then it will come about that any who are left of all the nations that went against Jerusalem will go up from year to year to worship the king, the Lord of hosts, and to celebrate the feast of booths. And it will be that whichever of the families of the earth does not go up to Jerusalem to worship the king, the Lord of hosts, there will be no rain on them. And if the family of Egypt does not go up or enter, then no rain will fall on them. It will be the plague with which the Lord smites the nations who do not go up to celebrate the Feast of Booze. This will be the punishment of Egypt and the punishment of all the nations who do not go up to celebrate the Feast of Booze. Imagine this. You see what's happening here? Jesus is sitting on his throne in Jerusalem. Every year, annually, the kings are told to do what? 
to go up and serve him at the feast and worship before him, right? And if they don't do that, in other words, implied here is what? Rebellion on the part of these kings. What will happen? Jesus will mete out justice or discipline to them in the form of what? Drought. Now, remember how we were talking about Jesus, God the Son, is God's agent in providence? You know what that means, right? That means he controls the weather. You with me? He controls the weather. So during this reign of Christ, when he rules over the kings of the earth, and he has commanded them annually to come up for the feasts, right? Three of them, right? Three of the feasts. This one is the Feast of Booze, pointing out specifically that those kings who do not come up, what will happen? Guess what? I'm not sending you any rain this year. Imagine that. Think about this picture of what's happening in the world. There is a king ruling from a throne who controls the weather. You with me? That's going to be a world unlike the the way this world looks. Understand? It's going to be vastly different during this millennial reign. During this millennial reign of Christ, things are going to be vastly different. Scripture says the wolf will lie down with the lamb and the child will play in the adder's nest. Imagine that. It's a bit different than things look today, isn't it? Because the last enemy to be destroyed will be death and that will happen at the consummation. Okay, we'll go there. We'll, we'll have question and answer on that chart there. But uh, specifically speaking about Jesus, the man, being the king, ruling over the earth, we're still kind of cataloging some of these scriptures in the Old Testament. But here, look at this. His throne will be located in Jerusalem, and from Mount Zion, Jesus, the king, will reign over all the earth. At this time, God will restore his people Israel to himself, and they will dwell in the land of Israel, which he promised to them. Now, I want you to see what the scripture says about this. Here, now we're talking about specifically the fact that Jesus reigns on a throne in Jerusalem, and that God has restored his covenant people Israel, the physical line of Israel, to the land, so that they are there and worshiping them, worshiping him, okay? Look with me, Ezekiel 20, 40 through 41. Now, this is a place where there are there is a ton of scriptures referring to this, and I just picked out a few, um, but here's some that make it really clear. Uh, Ezekiel 20, 40 and following. For on my holy mountain, on the high mountain of Israel, declares the Lord God, there the whole house of Israel, all of them, will serve me in the land. There I shall accept them, and there I shall seek your contributions and the choicest of your gifts with all your holy things. Now I want to ask you a question. Has that happened yet? Hadn't happened yet. So here we have an Old Testament prophecy of God. Of course, um, uh, here is not spoken about the kingly rule of Christ. We'll see that. But look what it says. He says, the whole house of Israel, all of them will serve me in the land. And there he says what? 
I shall accept them. You see that? Now, I would suggest to you that they are now in the land, but God has not yet accepted them. Why? Because they are not in Christ. Okay? But there's coming a day, family. There is coming a day. Read about it in Romans 11. But then also look at uh, Micah chapter 4 and verse 7. There it says, I will make the lame a remnant and the outcasts a strong nation and the Lord will reign over them in Mount Zion from now on and forever. Okay? And there again, the covenant name of God. Speaking about the fact that he will reign over them in Mount Zion. And what will happen in that day? In that day, listen, the whole house of Israel, all of them, will serve him in the land. You see that? How about Ezekiel 37 and following? And say to them, thus says the Lord God, Behold, I will take the sons of Israel from among the nations where they have gone, and I will gather them from every side and bring them into their own land. And I will make them one nation in the land on the mountains of Israel, and one king will be king for all of them. And they will no longer be two nations, and they will no longer be divided into two kingdoms. Question. Has that happened yet? No, it hasn't. Do you suppose God will install a king on Mount Zion who is not Jesus? No, of course not. Right? And, and again, I mean, the, the, the scriptures for this right here, there, there is a plethora. I mean, I, I'm talking maybe 50 or 60 different scripture passages in various prophets that speak specifically about this, as well as uh, scriptures in the uh, New Testament. Okay, Um, but the idea is, is that, listen, you're familiar with the portrait in Ezekiel 37. Who who knows what that prophecy is? Anybody? Right. The valley of dry bones. Right. You you remember the prophecy, the valley of dry bones. Right. (laughs) Ezekiel goes out there and God says, what do you see? And he says, nothing but a bunch of dead bones. Bones. So what? Very dry. He says, son of man, speak to the bones. Right. Right? <laughs> and you, you, know the, you know the story. He speaks to the bones, and the bones begin to come together, and they begin to grow sinews, and then they become skeletons, and then on the skeletons grows flesh. And before long, there's a whole living army of people who have been born again by the Spirit of God at the word of his prophet Ezekiel. Right? And when uh, Ezekiel goes on to explain this vision and what has happened, he's saying, I'm going to gather the whole house of Israel from all the nations where I scattered them. And they're going to become what? One nation in the land, and I'm going to put one king over them. That's the background of that little passage in Ezekiel. Okay? And and, uh, family, listen, this has happened before our very eyes. And, and let me tell you, this is unlike anything that's ever happened in the history of any nation, in all of the history of mankind. Tell me of a nation that was scattered to all the nations of the earth, an ethnos, a people group, an ethnic people group that was scattered to all the nations of the earth. And, and then some 2,000 years later are gathered back together and given their homeland again so that now they are a flourishing, thriving people again in their own land, which they had once possessed some two millennia before that. 
If you can't see that as a supernatural event, you need some eyewash or something. <laughs> are, are you with me? I mean, this is a divine supernatural event. Not only this, but this is a prophecy that is spoken not only by Ezekiel the prophet, but by many of the prophets. Okay, it's called the ingathering of Israel. Okay, you know, they had what's called the diaspora. You know what that is, right? That's the dispersion of, of the nations of Israel, right? And of course, th- this happened all the way back. It started happening all the way back at the dividing of the two kingdoms in the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. And the northern kingdom was scattered um, at the time that the king of Assyria came in and attacked the, the northern ten tribes of Israel. They were scattered and never again were they ever gathered again from that point forward until 1948, okay? Of course, the tribes uh, from the southern kingdom uh, were not scattered until sometime after that. And then there are various pictures in history between that time and the time of Christ that there were certain families of Jewish peoples that were left in the land. But they, 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 they lost a, a handle on their, on their ethnic uh, family lines and so on and so forth. It was a very difficult time for Israel. They have never again been put back together like they are now, all the way from the time of 700 B.C., okay? This is an amazing thing that has happened. And um, it has happened before our very eyes in the fulfillment of these very scriptures right here, Okay? Maybe you've never heard these things, uh, you know, and, and this is the kind of thing we need to hear in the church. We need to have a place to take Ezekiel 37 verses 21 and 22 and put it in our theology. It's got to fit somewhere, right? Right? It's the word of God. It's the word of the living God. We ought to know what it is. We ought to know what it means. And I'm telling you here, this prophecy has, has been fulfilled in part. Now, Israel has been brought into the land again. But it has not come to complete fruition. Why? Because God has not yet accepted their offering and worship because they have not yet come to Christ. Uh, But of course, that is also prophesied in the Old Testament and in the New Testament that that day is coming soon and very soon. Well, okay, looking at these last few things. There, that is there in Jerusalem, in the land, as he said, God's people, Israel, will have peace as the Prince of Peace, their Messiah, has brought them great security. And here, um, uh, in the same passage in Zechariah a little earlier, it reads like this. And it will come about in that day that living waters will flow out of Jerusalem, half of them toward the eastern sea and half of toward the western sea. And it will be summer as well as in winter. And the Lord will be king over all the earth. In that day, the Lord will be the only one and his name, the only one. And the land will be changed into a plain from Giba to Ramon, south of Jerusalem. But Jerusalem will rise and remain on its site from Benjamin's gate as far as the place of the first gate to the corner gate and from the tower of Hananel to the king's wine presses. And people will live in it and there will no be no more curse for Jerusalem will dwell in security. So it will be in the latter days... Jesus the king will be highly exalted in the sight of all nations and kingdoms and they will give him glory and serve him. This will happen during the millennium, the 1,000 year period of Christ's physical rule upon the earth with his saints. 
During this time, Satan will be bound and have no influence upon mankind. That's what Revelation says in chapter 20, verses 1 through 3. There, I saw an angel coming down from heaven, having the key of the abyss and a great chain in his hand. And he laid hold of the dragon, that serpent of old, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years and threw him into the abyss and shut it and sealed it over him so that he should not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were completed. After these things, he must be released for a short time. Toward the end of the millennium, there will be a final rebellion against Christ by the nations, at which time he will destroy them forever along with Satan. This will be the final doom of Satan and all the wicked, and the eternal state will be ushered in. And of course, that's there in Revelation 20, verses 7 through 10. In this eternal state, there will no longer be any sin in God's kingdom, and the inhabitants of the earth will rest in peace forever. And again, those things are clearly spoken of in in, uh, the latter chapters of Revelation. So, I figured that this conversation about the kingly rule of Christ and so on and so forth might raise a lot of questions about the timing of these things, like the one that my mom brought up there about uh, you know, what, what about sin? If, if, if Christ is going to be there ruling as king, you know, why is there still sin? And again, it's because in these prophecies, they're happening over the course of time and they're coming to an ultimate fulfillment, which is, of course, the consummation of all things and the eternal kingdom being ushered in, which will be a kingdom which will never end, kingdom without sin, where God will wipe every tear from our eyes. And there will be a new heavens and a new earth which God creates. Amen? Okay, is there any questions about that that I can answer? Yes? I don't know how to use the right term. Those of us who are grafted in, mm-hmm. um, what hap- what, we don't go to Jerusalem. Mm-hmm. Yes, we do. We do. We do. As we're kings and priests. Okay, we're considered part of the... Right, so I'll point you to the scripture, one of the scriptures, Revelation chapter 20, verses... <laughs> Uh, 7 through 10. And there the scripture speaks of the saints ruling and reigning with Christ in the millennial period. So if you look on the chart, you'll see it says Jesus is king, and it says the saints rule, right? And it says that Satan is bound. And it gives scripture references there for some of those things. Anybody else? Yes. Mm hmm. Ezekiel's temple. Quite a bit of controversy. This is in chapters 44 and following. Quite a bit of controversy following this because in the picture in Ezekiel, there is this uh, temple that's built and this whole idea of sacrifices being offered at that point, blood sacrifices being offered again unto God. And so there are varying viewpoints of what is actually happening there. Because we know that by one offering, God has perfected forever those who are sanctified. And that one offering is the Lord Jesus Christ. And his priesthood is one where he doesn't have to continually offer a sacrifice. But he died once for all to bring us to God. Amen. And so that creates quite a bit of controversy about these prophecies in Ezekiel 45 and following, which speak of a a, a temple um, which appears to be in the millennial reign. So if you will... For premillennialists, 
that creates quite a problem. Okay? Other other millennial positions have that problem solved. So I was reading in Revelation about the Ark of the Covenant appearing in the temple. Mm-hmm. And uh, I, I was just kind of pondering the significance of that. Is that representative of Christ or mm-hmm. of the king? So is this uh, the first few verses of Revelation 11? This is after is that the that seventh is? trumpet. Yeah. The significance of the Ark of the Covenant appearing in heaven. Sorry, I'm not prepared to comment on that. So. I just I was just kind of wondering where that fits in with Well, okay, so you have this whole thing of Revelation, and this is a this is another massive controversy. But in the Book of Revelation, a lot of people think that what you have is a chronology of events. I disagree entirely. There is not a chronology of events in Revelation. There are certain panoramas or visions or pictures uh, that John sees and with contained within those panoramas is chronology within that specific panorama. But what you have is you have these visions and some, some uh, Bible teachers describe it as a telescoping of visions so that what you have is, is one vision compounding on another down through the course of time and so that they are related in a sense but not in a linear fashion, okay? And you have other you have other Bible teachers who will say, no, Revelation 6 through Revelation 19 is a chronology of events that happens that that actual time period, Revelation, this is the dispensational premillennial view. Uh, and again, there's so many variations. Not all dispensational premillennialists will say this, but most of them do that Revelation 6 through 19 represents a chronology, which is the actual uh, seven-year Great Tribulation. And, of course, they they take that uh, Great Tribulation and they say that it is actually seven years long. And, um, and that Revelations chapter 6 through 19 is a representation of that in a linear format in a, in a chronology. And, and uh, of course, I would say that there is, there's about 400 holes in that. Uh, as you're reading through the uh, the visions that John has, you, you see these completely uh, other visions that don't even fit within the course of history. I'll give you an example. Revelation chapter 12, verses uh, the whole chapter, is, is, a, is a panorama where John sees things that happened long before the cross <laughs> and extend into things that happened uh, after, uh, after the um, uh, church age. So, you know, again, that's a panorama that doesn't fit in a linear fashion in time and space because there John sees a vision of Israel and the man-child and the man-child being snatched up to heaven and Satan being thrown down to the earth and a war in heaven and the angelic conflict. And that whole picture, if you will, for me, is like a 40,000-foot overview of God's plan of redemption. And and uh, but then again, in chapter 13, there takes up and there is a new panorama. And he says, and I saw then I saw a great beast coming out of the sea. See, then I saw a whole new panorama. And this is happening all through Revelation. But there then I saw this. um, And and in chapter 13 and following, he, he sees these visions of the Antichrist and his rule and his reign, which are things that are happening during the Great Tribulation. And if you will, on the chart, that's pictured uh there in the in the uh, the seventieth week of Daniel, 
Okay, you see that that's a seven year period and that there's three and a half years on either side of, of the abomination of desolation. And in the first three and a half years, you have his the rise of Antichrist to power. The last three and a half years, you have his reign or his rule, which is a, t- a tyrannical reign where he is is causing astounding devastation, the scripture says, and that he is uh, responsible for the death of millions of people and so on and so forth, that he, he, he he's filled with wrath and creating uh, all kinds of turmoil on the earth. And, of course, this great tribulation, if you will, is in the scripture um, those events which happen at the very hand of Antichrist in this wrath that he's filled with and that he is pouring out upon uh, all the nations who are around him. And, and um, of course, the extent of that is not really spoken of clearly, but... but um, uh, again, that, that time period there is, is a time period of the reign of the Antichrist. And if you will, that is the time of the great tribulation period, which is spoken of by the prophets and also by Jesus himself. And then again, described in certain panoramas in the book of Revelation, chapter 13 being, being the chief picture, I think, in, um, in um, the book of Revelation, describing the character and the nature of that rule and reign of Antichrist. Any other questions? Yes. You said Israel is regenerated. Yeah, Israel is regenerated. I believe that happens on your chart. (coughs) Sorry, this chart's busy enough already. (laughs) But there's a a ton of stuff that could go here. When it says the day of the Lord inaugurated, in, in my mind, that is the day when Jesus will stand on the Mount of Olives, and that is a fulfillment of the scripture where it says, in that day a spirit of grace and supplication will be poured out on the house of Israel, and they will look upon me whom they pierced, and they will mourn as one mourns for an only child. Will others be saved during, will others be saved during what time? During the uh, okay, no, that's, that's another quite a controversy for premillennialists. <laughs> Uh, because that that, that that now deals with the nature of the gospel. Okay, so uh, there's a lot of controversy around these eschatological events, and we're about out of time. But if, in fact, in the premillennial system, which some premillennialists say and some premillennialists don't say, is that the saints will actually be there ruling and reigning with Christ in glorified bodies. Okay, reigning as kings and priests. That... Here's Christ. He's on the earth. He's on a throne. Everybody sees it. He's ruling over the world. He's controlling the weather. <laughs> People are coming up to the temple to worship him. Okay? And and um, so here he is on the earth, and these things are happening. And um, uh, so what does the gospel look like in that day? Right now, we are imploring men t- by repentance and faith to turn from their sin and trust in a Christ whom they cannot see. Are you with me? But if, in fact, he is here on the earth and he's ruling as king and so on and so forth, how is it that men are saved in that day? Now, I'm assuming that it's going to be very similar to the way that it is now. Uh, uh, But if you will, it changes the nature of the gospel presentation because of the nature of Christ's physical rule upon the earth. Are you with me? So as a part of that understanding, there is a bit of controversy surrounding how will men be saved during the millennium? Okay? Did I answer that? That's, okay. That's the term end of the church age, right? 
Yeah, thus the term end of the church age. Yes. Right. And there's little disagreement about that. Um, of course, now, dispensational premillennialists will say that that happens at the rapture, which happens before the tribulation period. In other words, the church, a dispensational premillennialist will say the church age ends just prior to the, um, I'm sorry, ends at the rapture, which is prior to the tribulation. A historic premillennialist says that happens after the tribulation period. But, but either way, that church age is ending before the millennial rule. And that's what it means to be premillennial. Okay? Okay, one more, so and then we got to go. Yes. It looks like the little arrow is right before the millennium. Exactly. Exactly. Right. And if you want uh, a a further understanding of that right there, I'll point you to two places. Grudem in his theology uh, speaks of it in very similar terms. He's even got some charts where he shows that, the difference between dispensational premillennialism and historic premillennialism. But I think a better, uh, more biblical description, more comprehensive biblical description of it is in George Ladd's book called The Blessed Hope. Okay, shall we pray? Lord, we thank you for this day. We thank you for these immense and mind-boggling prophecies of future events. I pray, God, that you will encourage us with the hope, Lord, that you are coming to this earth one day soon and that, Lord, you are going to eradicate your enemies from this earth and there will be peace. And so, God, we pray, come quickly, Lord Jesus, and bring peace on this earth as you have promised. And, Lord, we uh, we ask that you would help us to be bold witnesses for your cross and with your gospel and that people would be saved Lord, by our zeal in proclaiming your gospel, may we be ministers of your gospel and of your precious blood. And Lord, I just pray that you would continue to help us to grow in our knowledge and understanding of these things. We thank you for such a rich word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.